today I'm, I'm starting out in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are probably my two favorite books in the Old Testament. Um, I love the story of Samuel and Saul and David and Jonathan and that whole process of David becoming king and, and everything that happened because this was such a huge transition point in the history of Israel. So we're not doing this series chronologically. We're going to be jumping around. So I just want to kind of help you understand the context of where we're at. Um, 1 Samuel takes place right after the book of Judges and kind of at the same time. Now, it's not directly after it in your Bible, but time-wise, it's around the same time. So after Israel comes out of Egypt, God frees them from slavery. They get to the promised land, and then they go with Joshua. They start to conquer. Jericho happens. They start to take the promised land, but they don't clear it of every other nation. God told them that they needed to destroy every other nation because if they didn't, they would be tempted into worshiping idols, all of that. And that's exactly what happened. So Israel, throughout the book of Judges and throughout that time in their history, is continually sinning, repenting, turning back to God when another, you know, superpower is oppressing them, asking God to rescue them from these countries that are oppressing them. And so God sends what were called judges. And basically what they were is they were people that God called up to speak for him and to rescue his people and to set them free. And they kind of became leaders of the country, of the nation of Israel. So we know stories from Gideon, Samson. These are all stories we're going to get to in this series. Um, And you'll hear more about them. But that's the time that Israel is coming out of. Now, There were different judges in different areas of the country at the same time. So the story of Samson actually kind of coincides with what we're going to start talking about today in 1 Samuel because Samuel happens around the same time as Samson. And as we work through this, um, I'm going to help you kind of understand the timing the best that I can because it is a little confusing. It's hard to get everything straight. And I'm someone that really likes, I like timelines a lot. I like to know like what order things happened in. I like to figure it out. So a lot of today is going to be very, very historical. We're going to go through 12 chapters of the Bible this morning in 30 minutes, hopefully. So stick with me. I'm going to have about half of them up on the screen. The other half I'm going to read for you, and you can write down the references and and look it up in your own time. But we're trying to get through a lot today. Um, So I'm calling this Samuel and Saul Part 1. I was supposed to do like one character or one story, so I'm doing two characters over two weeks because... I think their stories intertwine so much. Um, at times, I would even make an argument that it intertwines more than the story of Saul and David. I really um, like the parallels between Samuel and Saul, and um, I like what I can learn from both of them, and that's hopefully what we're going to walk through these next two weeks, is really understanding where they came from a little bit, and then how they ended up where they ended up at the end of their lives, because um, they both ended up in two very different places. And so... We're going to start today. Uh, you can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3. So to give you a little background, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get into it, because I'm, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I have, like, a lot to get through. So God, thank you for today. Thank you for everyone that's here. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's, that it's good, that you want to speak to us, that you want to have a relationship with us today, Jesus. I pray that you would illuminate your word to us, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts, that we would leave this place different, that we would leave this place changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I'm going to do this a little bit differently. Um, I'm going to give you a little background. We're going to jump in, and I'm actually going to give you my three points, and then we're going to tell the whole story so that you can kind of track with me as we go throughout. Um, so in chapters 1 and 2 in 1 Samuel, Samuel's mother is barren. She cannot have any children. So she goes to the temple and prays to God for a son. She, she wants um, an heir. She wants to be able to give her husband um, someone. That's, that was the culture that if you didn't have a son, if you didn't have children, you weren't really fulfilling your duty and your role as a wife. And so she went to the temple. She prayed to God that he would give her a son. And she promised him, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I will dedicate him to you. Um, and this wasn't like kind of a cop-out, like, oh, I'm just going to take him to church and we're going to say, hey, we dedicate him to God and then I'm going to keep him forever. She was going to give him to serve in the priesthood at the temple for his entire life. Um, so the high priest, Eli, prayed with her, blessed her. She became pregnant right after that. She had Samuel, and as soon as he was um, potty trained, basically, he was weaned and potty trained and ready to, you know, he's like a toddler. She takes him back to the temple and gives him to the high priest, Eli, to be raised by the priest to be um, serving God for his whole life. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 3, um, verse 1. But first I want to just talk about, I, don't, I must have told you this, but Sarah kind of stole like the first third of my sermon this morning because I really want to focus, the first thing is on the call. And so I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk about Samuel's call and I'm going to talk about Saul's call. Oh man, that's going to be a mouthful. So, <laughs> I didn't even think about how much that rhymes. It's gonna, I'm going to get tongue twisted. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parallel both their stories. Stick with me. If I need to slow down, just come talk to me afterwards because I probably won't slow down. So the first thing I want to look at is how they were both called because there's, there's something very similar about the way God called them, about what their lives were like before God chose to use them as instruments for his people and to accomplish his purposes. The second thing I want to look at is their preparation. They both went through very different preparations. Um, God set them up to do what he called them to do through different avenues. And I kind of want to compare and contrast what those look like. And then the third thing is the result. And this is kind of after the call, after God prepared them, what was the result of what their lives showed? How were they living out their calling from God? And just like Sarah was saying this morning, we have all been called by God to do different things. Recently, Sarah has now been called to be a kindergarten teacher instead of a special ed teacher, which is exciting um, for us as a family. And so I felt from the age of 12 that I was called to be a pastor, that I was called to be in full-time ministry. There, my dad was called to be a salesman, I think, because he's really, really good at it. You know, we all have different callings. We all have different things that we were created to do. And we're going to look at the difference between Samuel and Saul, because though they were both called to lead and called to be examples, they were called to do different sorts of leading and different sorts of examples. And we can kind of follow their story and see how they each turned out. So the first thing we're going to look at is 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel served the Lord by assisting Eli. Now in those days, messages from the Lord were very rare and visions were quite uncommon. So this is Samuel around age 8. Preceding this, at the end of chapter 2, we hear about Eli, the high priest. His sons have started taking over his duties as high priest, and they are horrible people. Um, 
They are stealing from the sacrifices. They are sleeping with the female attendants that are working the temple. They are just full of corruption. And God has spoken to Eli saying, you need to get your sons in line or I'm going to take care of it myself. To which Eli goes, hey guys, you should stop doing that. And then they don't because they don't care what he says. So that's what the meanwhile is. So as Eli is dealing with this family issue, Samuel is serving the Lord and messages from the Lord were very rare. So the next part of the story is Samuel's in bed and he's about eight years old and he hears a voice going, Samuel, Samuel. So he goes to Eli, goes, what do you need? He, he thinks it's Eli calling him. After a few times, Eli realizes that it's God speaking to Samuel. So he says, next time, answer to God. And so in verse 10, we pick up, it says, the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel replied, speak, your servant is listening. And this is where Samuel's call starts. It's a, it's literally like a call from God. He, sa- he speaks his name and Samuel answers and says, I'm listening. I'm ready to do what it is that you've asked me to do. And Samuel's call, as we're looking in this big picture, his call is to speak for God and to bring the people of Israel to reconciliation and to repentance to God. So the first message that he gets as an eight-year-old boy is tell the high priest Eli that I'm going to uh, kill his sons, I'm going to judge his family, and they will be wiped out forever, and I'll, I'll give the priesthood to somebody else. <laughs> yep, eight years old. That was, that's his first message from God, is going, oh, you, uh, you answered my call. Now here, go relay this message. It's kind of a trial by fire. It's like, we're going to do the hardest thing first. This is how my dad taught me to drive a stick shift a few years ago. I had never driven a manual before. How many of you have driven a stick shift? So... Okay, good. Most of you will understand how terrible this is. So he takes me. In, in my defense, I had about 40 hours to learn how to do it, and then I had to drive from St. Louis to here with that new car that I got. So the first thing he does is he takes me to this hill near his house. It's about a 45-degree angle. Like, for real, this is one of the steepest hills you can drive on. And he just goes, all right, now pretend you're at, there's a stop sign at the top of the hill. So I want, you to, I want you to idle, then I want you to pull up a car length and stop and idle. Then I want you to pull up a car length and stop and idle. That's the hardest thing to do in a car that is a stick shift because you like automatically stall it out. You have to get this perfect back and forth to get it to stay on a hill going up and like stay idle to where you're not hitting cars in front of you or behind you. And that was the first thing he decided to teach me how to do. And it, it took about an hour before I was like, Dad, I need to stop. I hate you. <laughs> and he, I was like, he's like, okay, we'll, we'll try again tomorrow. And then, but within 40 hours, I was able to drive a car from St. Louis to Detroit because he did the hardest thing first. And that's kind of how my dad always taught me. And I hated it in the moment. And then afterwards, I was like, wow, that worked really fast. I appreciate that. And I kind of, I feel for eight-year-old Samuel in this instance because that's the message he's getting. He's like, okay, so you know, like, the guy who's been your father and, you know, he, he, he's in charge of your entire life. Go tell him, like, I'm going to kill him and his whole family and then someone else is going to take over. And you're like, all right. So Samuel, it says he's terrified to do it. Eli comes to him the next morning. What did God say? Samuel tells him everything. He doesn't leave out a detail. He was already starting to fulfill that calling to speak for God 
to call people to repentance, to ask people to be reconciled to God. So he does that, and then we end chapter 3 with verses 19 through 21, and then verse 1 of chapter 4 says this, As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him, and everything Samuel said proved to be reliable. And all Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh and gave messages to Samuel there at the tabernacle. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, And Samuel's words went out to all the people of Israel. So starting at age 7, as he grew up, Samuel was confirmed as someone who could speak for the Lord. Now this is a time when there were judges. So during Samuel's childhood is at when Samson was a judge in a part of Israel. But what this is saying is that Samuel became known throughout the entire nation, united as one nation, as someone who spoke for God. And he grew up that way. And every time he spoke for God, it was proved true. And it was proved that he was really hearing from God. And Samuel's words, verse 1, it said, went out to all of Israel. So right now, God is already starting to unify the Israelites. After this time of judges, of this back and forth, he's starting to bring them together under Samuel's calling of going, if you speak for me and you'll tell people what I say, I can start bringing people under that and start bringing them together again, like when I brought them out of Egypt. So Samuel's preparation is way, way, way different. So the first thing we have is call. He was a kid, God called him, and then all of a sudden, God's using him. Everything he does is proven to be true. Everything he says for God, it was a simple, hey, do this for me, be obedient, and I'll equip you to keep doing it. And that's what happens. So Samuel's preparation is different because in 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, and 6, it doesn't involve him at all, really. This is just that time that he's speaking to God, God's speaking to him. And remember, this is a time when that was very, very uncommon. People weren't ready to hear from God. And so it was very uncommon that people did speak for God, and Samuel, the boy, is the one who's growing up doing this. And so in chapter 4, Israel goes to war with the Philistines. They go, oh man, we should bring the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm because they didn't understand, you know, God's presence and how that worked. That's a whole other sermon. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant. They didn't they weren't told to do this by God. This was Eli's son's ideas, going, oh, let's, uh, let's bring our lucky rabbit's foot and ask God to help us do this thing that he never told us to do. And so they get defeated. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, which is the representation of God's presence in Israel. So think about this. In theory, God's presence is gone through the Ark of the Covenant, but Samuel is still speaking for God, and it's still proven to be true. And all of Israel is hearing his words. So this happens. The Philistines, God starts giving them tumors and boils. They just a whole bunch of crap happens. So they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. They basically hook up some cows to it. They're like, just go back. So they come back. Now the Ark is in Israel. The first people that get the Ark, they decide to look in it, which is like rule number one of don't do that. So 70 people ended up dying because they disobeyed God. So then they're like, oh, we don't want God's presence here. We're going to send it to the next town. It eventually ends up in a man's house, and it stays there for over 20 years. And it says during this time, Israel felt as though God had left them. And so even though the Ark of the Covenant's in Israel, it felt like God wasn't there to them. So we come back in chapter 7, and Samuel re-enters the story. All this time, he's been a prophet to all of Israel. 
He's been speaking for God at Shiloh. It said that God was still speaking to him there, even though the Ark of the Covenant wasn't there anymore. And this is kind of a a little glimpse forward of going, God's presence doesn't exist in objects. It doesn't exist in places. It exists through people and through their obedience. So we look at Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. He calls all the people of Israel together at Mizpah because they're about to get destroyed by the Philistines again. And what did we say his call was? To speak for God and to call people to repentance. So chapter 7, verse 3. Then Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you want to return to the Lord with all your hearts, get rid of your foreign gods, your images of Ashtoreth. Turn your hearts to the Lord and obey him alone. Then he will rescue you from the Philistines. So this is the first time since the age of the judges that all of Israel gathers together in one place. And they gather together. Samuel calls them all together to repent of their idol worship. So the Philistines think this is an incredible opportunity to wipe out the entire nation all at one time because they're now all in the same location. So while they're here and Samuel's going, you need to repent, the Philistines are surrounding them ready to attack. Israel responds to the call to repentance. They ask God for forgiveness. They ask God to rescue them. And as he so often does, he rescues them. He speaks with a voice of thunder. The Philistines go into chaos. They start running. All of Israel chases after them and kills them. And it says that they were so disrupted, they were so spread out that not one man was left with another one from the Philistines. They were that like discombobulated as they, they all took off in so many different directions that no two of them were left standing together when they ran. And God did that because of the repentance that Samuel brought Israel to. So now in verse 15, it says, Samuel continued as Israel's judge for the rest of his life. Now, this is a promotion in a way for Samuel because before he was a prophet, right? He spoke for God to all of Israel. And now they're coming back and they're going, you know what? You're the judge, you're the leader. And he's the first judge to be over all of Israel. He's also the last judge that's gonna come up in a couple minutes. But he, he goes from just being someone who speaks for God that now he's the leader of the people. And this preparation that Samuel goes through is so long. He's about 50 years old here at Mizpah, according to a rough estimate based on multiple scholars' takes and the timelines and all those different things. So from age 8 to about 50, he is faithfully speaking for God. It's a long preparation, but it's always proven to be true. And then he comes to this point around age 50. He brings all of Israel together to repentance to what God had called him to do. And he becomes their leader. So Samuel, after a few years, he starts getting old and he has his sons try to take over. I don't know why he didn't learn from Eli, but his sons did not have the same call that he had. They were just his sons. So he puts them in charge and they become judges over Israel and they start taking bribes. They start being dishonest. Like that's like the worst kind of judge is one that takes a bribe. Is, and that's, that's who Samuel's sons are. And so Israel comes to Samuel. They're like, you know what? We're tired of this. Like your sons are nothing like you. We appreciate everything you've done, but we're done with the whole judges thing. We're done with God being our king. We want to be like every other nation. We want a king to rule over us, to bring us together, to lead us. 
And Samuel is ticked because he, he feels like he's being rejected. He's going, I, I, I've spent my whole life serving you, and all, all of a sudden you're asking for a king. So in chapter 8, verse 6 through 9, Samuel was displeased with their request, and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods, and now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So this is where Samuel's calling takes another change. He started as a prophet, becomes the judge leader. Now they're saying, hey, your sons kind of suck at that, so now we want a king. So now Samuel steps back down into the role of prophet, and he has to see Israel through this transition in their history, which is just as momentous as when they you know, left Egypt and left slavery. This is the next biggest event and biggest change in Israel's history as they go, we're no longer okay with, with being ruled by God and having someone speak for him. We now want a king to rule us like everybody else. And this is where Saul comes in to the story. So now we have Samuel's calling, we have his preparation. We kind of see how his whole life has been leading up to this. Faithfulness, consistency, speaking for God, obedience, brings him to this place where he is now in charge of finding a new king. Now Saul is fulfilling Israel's request for a king, and, and God is giving Israel what they want, right? So he kind of picks somebody that makes sense. He's, he's not trying to pick uh, somebody that would surprise everyone, like Gideon was a coward. I have a theory that Samson was very, very skinny and scrawny, even though he was strong. Because I don't believe it'd be that surprising if a guy that looked like Dwayne The Rock Johnson could like kill people with a jawbone. You're like, yeah, with the right training, I could see that happen. But if someone like super skinny and tiny was able to do that, you'd be like, God's doing something there. That's kind of crazy. That's a side note. But God's giving Israel what they want. And he's going, you know what? I'm going to give them exactly what they think they want. So we look at chapter 9, verse 2 now, and it says, Saul was the most handsome man in all Israel. I get it. Head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. So this dude, he's probably taller than me. He's probably just like barely less good looking than me. And he's going, this is a guy who looks kingly, right? Because he's head and shoulders taller than everybody in the entire nation. He's kind of a giant. And he's the most handsome man in the entire country. It's kind of crazy. It's like, uh, I guess Chris Hemsworth probably is the closest thing we could do to like, because he's like 6'3", which is pretty tall, and he is handsome. I've had a seven-year-old tell me I looked like Thor, so that's something. I don't know if any of you have had a seven-year-old tell you that. You know that scripture about from the mouth of babes? So, Saul is called to become the leader of Israel and to rescue them from the nations around them because that's what Israel wants. They go, we want a king that's going to lead us. He's going to save us. He's going to rescue us. He's going to lead us into battle. He's going to rule over us. And then we'll be like everybody else and we'll finally be able to stand on our own two feet. That will solve our problems. It has nothing to do with our unfaithfulness to God and it has everything to do with a poor structure of government. That's what they're thinking. So now... As we're seeing Saul's calling, we're also seeing the result 
of Samuel's calling and his preparation. Samuel continues to hear from the Lord, and he spiritually leads Israel into a new era. In verses 15 through 17 of chapter 9, this is um, what happens next in Saul and Samuel's story. It says, Now the Lord had told Samuel the previous day, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him to be the leader of my people, Israel. He will rescue them from the Philistines, for I have looked down on my people in mercy, and I have heard their cry. That right there should be a sermon in itself. Like, after all this, God's like, I'm going to rescue them because they asked me to. And there's no way he should have. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, oh, Samuel saw Saul, Samuel saw Saul. The Lord said, that's the man I told you about. He will rule my people. So now we're seeing God is able to use Samuel's obedience, this preparation of of what seems like a distance from God as a nation. He's able to lead them into this next step, even though he feels rejected by them. And the result is God uses him to anoint the king that Israel wants. Chapter 9, verse 21, Saul replies to Samuel, because Samuel's like, hey, I've got a, a special deal for you. Like, they get a meal together, and he's like, I've got something special for you. You're the, you're the guest of honor. He gives him the choicest food at this feast. And Saul's like, I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking to me like this? Saul's confused because even though he looks the part of the king, there's nothing in him that feels qualified for this role. Now, this is where their callings are similar, right? Because an eight-year-old boy isn't exactly qualified to speak for God, right? And even though this dude's tall and he's handsome and whatever, he knows himself that he, he's not the guy for this job. He's like, I might look good, but I can't like, do what needs to be done. I don't have that ability. And I think when we look at them, we can really see something and learn something about how God calls people. And this is something I've been taught a lot, is God doesn't call the people who are already qualified he then prepares and qualifies the people that he chooses to call. And there's nothing that we can do to earn our, our call. There's nothing that we can do to make God change his mind because when he created you, he created you for a purpose. He created you like he created Samuel to speak for him. He created Saul to be a leader, to be that king. But it doesn't happen without preparation. That's why that's the next step. So here we are, chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. So we're seeing this call on Saul's life completely revolutionize anything he ever thought. He goes, I'm the least tribe, the least family. I, you know, have some freakish growth spurt and all of a sudden I'm becoming a king. He's like, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. And Samuel goes, this is just what I do. He goes, this is hard for me, just as hard as it was when I was eight years old giving that word to Eli. Now I'm having to give Israel a king even though they shouldn't want it. Chapter 10, verse 6 and 7. At that time, this is what happens right after he anoints him. Samuel says this to Saul. He says, at that time, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you 
You will prophesy with them. There are a bunch of prophets that he told them to go and meet. You will be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. So we see Saul's preparation is very, very different than Samuel's. Samuel's is long and drawn out. It's this lifelong journey of being faithful, of hearing from God and speaking and proving and proving over time that God was using him. Now we see Saul's preparation, and it happens in a moment. In verses 9 and 10, this is when it happens. As Saul started to leave, this is him leaving the conversation with Samuel after he was anointed. As Saul started to leave, God gave him a new heart right then and there. It says some versions say gave him another heart, made him a new person. And all of Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming towards them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to prophesy. So we've made it through 10 chapters. We're seeing this, and we see Samuel's preparation over the course of 50 years, and we see Saul's preparation happen in an instant. He leaves the conversation. God changes his heart. He walks to meet these prophets. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. That's who the Spirit of God is. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. He starts prophesying with them. He is equipped to fulfill his calling in an instant, in a moment. God comes on him and goes, you know what? You couldn't do it. Now you have my Holy Spirit. Now you can do it. That's the sign. Because then Samuel goes, once that happens, you're a completely different person. Once the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you're completely different. Go and do what you got to do because God's with you. So now we see Samuel, after this, he once again gets together all of Israel, again at Mizpah, the last place that they all repented. And he takes the opportunity to show that Saul is king. So back then they would cast lots. It was basically like, "Mm, no, that could come off wrong. It was like they had these rocks. This This is a horrible explanation, but Pastor Jacob can do it better. And they would cast them. And then based on what they said, they would know who was being chosen. It was how God spoke through the priests, not necessarily how he spoke to Samuel. So they cast lots. Samuel already knows what God said. Saul already knows what God said. But now he's doing this in front of Israel to show that this is what God has chosen. It's not just one man's word saying, oh, I picked a guy who looks like a king. God said so. No, he's proving through a process that they're used to to show that God had chosen Saul. So they cast lots, they find out he's from the tribe of Benjamin, they find out he's from his family, and then all of a sudden they find out that it's Saul, and he anoints him again before all of Israel as their king that they had asked for. After this, Saul has a group of friends, he's getting ready to leave the place, and then in verse 27 it says, there were scoundrels who complained, how can this man save us? you can't win with these people. They're like, give us a king. And he picks like the most kingly looking dude. And they're like, how's he going to do it? It's like, did you think you were going to do it? Those people, they're everywhere too. Like people are going to hear what God called you to do and be like, oh, you got picked to do it. It's like, are you doing it? And they're like, well, no, I'm just surprised you are. It's like, just shut up. Sorry. They scorned him. They refused to bring in gifts. And here's, here's the key that I think is a huge step in Saul's preparation to be a leader. But Saul ignored them. I love it. He had the power as king to just, like, kill him right there. Like, that's the kingship, right? And he just, he's like, 
dude, they're just blowing hot air. Just ignore them. And you're going to have people come up against your calling. They're going to say, you're not really good enough to do that. You're not really prepared to do that. You've kind of messed up a lot. I don't know if you could do that. Are you sure that's what God said? Because there's people that are way better at that than you. And you can choose to be like Saul in that moment and just be like, just ignore them. Like, just ignore them. Know what God told you to do. Know what God said about you. Know what God is preparing you to do. Saul was there when the Holy Spirit came on him, right? He was there when he, his heart was changed and when he started prophesying. Those scoundrels, I love that word, it's so funny. Those scoundrels weren't there. They didn't see what happened in the private moments with God where he was equipped and where he was prepared. And so they were just haters and you just gotta ignore them. Saul had already learned to ignore the haters. He's being equipped and prepared to be a leader. Because when we are truly obeying God, when we're doing what he's asked us to do, there's going to be haters on the way, and we have to know that we trust what God said more than what these people say about us, or even what we say about ourselves. Because honestly, I'm like, I'm my biggest hater. Um, you know, I, there's more doubt that comes from me and my abilities than it does from anyone outside. And so sometimes that's kind of ignoring yourself and, and going back to those moments where you know God called you, because that's that's what changes it, is knowing when the Holy Spirit decided to come in to prepare you, to equip you. So we see the result of God's preparation for Saul, calling him to lead Israel. And we see this in chapter 11. So we only got two chapters left. We're close. Chapter 11, uh, the Ammonites are a country. They come to attack a city, and they go, hey, uh, we killed most of your people. This is back in the day, like, we got most of your people, we gouged out all their right eyes, you guys got away, so we're coming to finish the job, we're going to gouge out all your right eyes and take control over you. And so they go, well, hold up, give us seven days to ask for help. Now, the old Israel was not united, right? They had no king, they had judges all over the place trying to save everybody in all these different areas. Now they're united under a king, they're like, wait, let's try something, let's go ask for help give us seven days, and if no one comes to help us, just, you know, they basically just like laid, laid down. They're like, oh, we'll just roll over and let you do it. Um, so the word comes to Saul. He's plowing a field, and it says that the Spirit of the Lord, chapter, verse 6, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. Now, God had called Saul to be a just leader, to bring justice, to bring rescue. So he hears that God's people are being attacked and he gets furious. He ends up killing these ox, cutting them up, sending them to all the tribes of Israel and going, hey, if you don't come and help, all of your ox are going to look like these ones. It's pretty intense leadership style. Um, I'm, not, I'm not condoning that type of leadership. But I am saying he, he was moved as the leader, to bring Israel together, just like God asked, to lead them, to rescue them, just like God asked. And they, they responded, if that surprises you. If, if someone a head and shoulders taller than me, that was my king, told me he was going to rip up my ox, if I didn't come, I'd probably just show up. Verse 13, oh no, wait, I'm skipping it. So they come, don't go to verse 13 yet. It's already up there, but don't read it. So they answer the call, they come, they destroy the Ammonites, they save the city, and, you know, everybody's pretty pumped up. And there's people that 
want to uh, take care of those scoundrels now. They go, who was saying Saul shouldn't be our leader? Now they really believe in him because now they're seeing the results of the preparation from the Holy Spirit. They're seeing the results of Saul's calling. And they're going, now, now we're really behind this guy, all right? Who are those scoundrels that said he shouldn't be king? Let's kill him. And this is kind of what most people would think should have happened right at the beginning. But this is where Saul replies in verse 13, no one will be executed today, for today the Lord has rescued Israel. Now we're going to see a shift next week in Saul's thinking, but right now he understands who did the work. He understands who rescued Israel. He understands mercy. He understands justice. And it's not always the world's justice, it's God's justice. And a lot of times that means mercy and it means giving another chance. And so Saul begins to lead the way that God wants him to lead this nation by rescuing them, by showing mercy. Now at this point, Samuel brings all of Israel together again. They have this religious ceremony to go once again, this is your king. This is what you asked for. And in chapter 12, is where we're going to end today. Samuel has become a prophet. He set up Saul as king. Saul has proven the results of his calling, of his preparation, of what God has done, what God's told him to do. And so Samuel kind of does like a a little goodbye speech in chapter 12. He's like, have I ever stolen from you? Have I ever been dishonest? Have I ever done all these things? And they're like, no. And he's like, Verse 20, don't be afraid, Samuel assured them, because he does this whole thing where he goes, you know how you guys shouldn't have asked for a king? Well, I'm going to bring a sign from God that shows you shouldn't have asked for a king. It rains in the middle of a drought. All of Israel's freaking out, like, because they're going, oh man, we all deserve to be destroyed. And this is what Samuel said, don't be afraid. You have certainly done wrong, but make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart and don't turn your back on him. Don't go back to worshiping worthless idols that cannot help or rescue you. They are totally useless. The Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonor his great name. For it has pleased the Lord to make you his very own people. As for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. And I will continue to teach you what is good and what is right. So he closes it out and what does he do? He fulfills his calling again before he hands the leadership mantle over. He goes, you know what? You all need to repent. And he brought Israel to repentance one more time. And he's like, I'm still going to speak for God. I'm still going to teach you. I'm still going to be there to help you. It's like, but you have to make the decision to follow him, to be obedient to him, to not go back to these idols that you keep going back to. And so, We look at this first part, and I really wanted to focus on this calling that they have, because in the second part of 1 Samuel, we're going to see how very, very different Samuel and Saul continue to live that out. We, We see very different results at the end of their life. But the three points, I don't know if you can put them back up at the very beginning, the call, the preparation, the result. Those are the three things I want you to think about today for your own life. Because these are all things that we can relate to. We're not being called to become kings. We may not be called to become prophets in the sense that Samuel was. But you have a calling. 
you have something that you know God has asked you to do, you have something that you know God's created you to be, someone that he's created you to be, and sometimes you gotta identify that. You gotta go back to those moments and go, when did God show up and ask something of me? When did God show up and tell me who I was? When did God show up and tell me that he has a plan for me? How is God trying to prepare you? What's the com- there's, there's a common theme in all three of these that's super, super important. And we're gonna talk more about it next week too is the spirit of the Lord. Did you notice that in these moments, it was the spirit of the Lord that was showing up. In that moment, it was the spirit of the Lord that spoke to Samuel. It was the spirit of the Lord that spoke to Samuel to anoint Saul. It was the spirit of the Lord that came upon Saul and changed his heart. It was the spirit of the Lord that did these miraculous signs to bring Israel to repentance, to bring them back, to reconcile them with him. And the theme through all of this is the Holy Spirit and his role in this story, in their two lives, and in your life. Because that's God's avenue of speaking to us. That's God's avenue of equipping and preparing us. That's God's avenue of making the results happen. Because we saw the results from Samuel's life because the Holy Spirit carried out what he spoke to him. We see the results in Saul's life because the Holy Spirit empowered him to lead Israel to victory. So we are going to close with communion. We're going to close with a worship song. And for me, communion's about taking another step, if that makes sense. So it's, it's going, yes, it's about remembering what Jesus did. And it's about going, you know, thanking him for that and thanking him for his sacrifice on the cross and for shedding his blood and understanding that that's the only way that we're saved. That's how we have access to the Holy Spirit. That's how we have access to have this relationship with God. But for me, I really take communion as a time to like revamp, kind of refocus and be like, okay, what's the next step? What's the next thing? This isn't This isn't all about looking back. This isn't all about remembering, but he saved us and he died on the cross and he rose again from the grave. And we remember that in order to see what the next step is. What is it that God wants to do in you today? We start by going, God, thank you for doing this. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for saving me. And then as as we finish receiving it, we're going, okay, what's next? I'm ready for my next assignment. I'm ready for the next preparation step. I'm ready to see the next result of your Holy Spirit moving. So as we take communion today, remember what Christ did. Remember that that call has to do with what Jesus did first. Without what Jesus did, we wouldn't even be in a a position to respond to God properly. But because of what he did, we can respond, we can be obedient, we can be used, we can be called. And that's where we want to be today. So we're going to take communion. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. And then we're going to close and be dismissed.